So Money episode 1195, Melody Wilding, author of the book, Trust Yourself, Stop Overthinking and Channel Your Emotions at Work. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. It also screams confidence because if you Mm -hmm. can own this is who I am and not be ashamed of it and say, actually, this is how it's a huge value add to you, to your company. You know, I'm the one who saves us money because I spot problems and raise my hand about that before it happens. I'm the one that has deep integrity and will uh, say when I don't feel something is right. So these are the people you want on your team. It just requires we feel confident and take ownership of those strengths and speak to them. Our guest today is offering advice for the folks in the audience. She describes as sensitive strivers, empathetic, driven individuals. You may have been called too sensitive at work and in everyday life, but she is here to be a champion for all of us who identify as sensitive strivers, how to break free from stress, perfectionism, and self-doubt to achieve confidence, overcome imposter syndrome, speak and act with assertiveness, and find the confidence to work and lead effectively. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. I'm so excited for my friend, Melody. She has been working tirelessly to bring this book to life. Susan Cain, the author of Quiet, the New York Times bestselling book, calls Melody's book groundbreaking and insightful. Melody Wilding has coached hundreds of private clients from CEOs and Fortune 500 executives to leaders from the Department of Education, the Federal Reserve, the UN. She teaches graduate level human behavior and psychology at the Silberman School of Social Work at Hunter College in New York. Her advice has been featured in the New York Times, Oprah Magazine, NBC News. Here's Melody Wilding. Melody Wilding, welcome back to So Money. Congrats on your new book. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and finally share it. Yes, Trust Yourself is the title. Stop overthinking and channel your emotions at work. I am thrilled. I know that you have been deeply involved in researching and developing this book concept for years. That's right. <laughs> Truly. Five, five, well, the book itself was five years in the making, but I've been doing this work for 10 years now. So yeah, quite a while. Do you feel like you really nailed it here? You think that it, it, it you needed all this all this time? Uh, absolutely. I think uh, <laughs> it's funny because a trait, an aspect of sensitivity is deeper processing, which now looking back on it makes complete and total sense. But you know, this is a this is a new concept, so it really took me a while to see it come together uh, and to really research it and you know see it see the patterns within my clients. So. I think we got it though. I think I think I nailed it. Yes, and I know all those years ago when you were first describing your thoughts for this thesis, I feel like we were talking around it where we were talking about like, oh, people who are emotional and mm-hmm. but you really nailed it to this piece about sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And I really want you to tell us about 
who the protagonist really in this book is, and it's a, it's a prescriptive book, but it's, you know, if we're thinking about sort of like the hero in, in your book here, these sensitive strivers, mm-hmm. tell us who they are and what you want us to know about sensitive strivers. And I think you identify with this group very much, right? 100%. This book is completely from my own personal experiences, but also my clinical training and my years of coaching now. So a sensitive striver is a high achiever who is highly sensitive. So they are someone who is driven, enjoys pushing themselves to achieve goals, but they also think and feel everything more deeply than the average person. So biologically, this refers to about 15 or 20% of people. So about one in five people. So you know, it's, it's, you are or someone, you know, is a sensitive striver. And we have this trait difference that leads us to be more attuned and reactive to our environment and what happens within us. So we are more aware of observant um, and responsive to our own emotions, as well as those of other people. And we are deeply caring, we're committed, we give our 110% to everything we do. That's the striver side but we very much have this inner world that's on overdrive. So while being a sensitive striver is a tremendous strength that comes with a lot of assets that are very important to your professional life, if not managed correctly, or many sensitive strivers just lack the tools to manage their sensitivity correctly. And because we process and experience the world more deeply than other people, we're more susceptible to stress, overwhelm, overthinking, imposter syndrome, lack of boundaries, all of those sorts of things. You say one in five, but that's still a minority of people at work. And I know mm-hmm. that we often dismiss this pe- the people that we, co- we call sensitive as overly sensitive, too sensitive, sensitive to a fall, all of that. So you're living your truth as a sensitive striver in a world that isn't celebratory of that. That has to be the biggest barrier. That has to be the biggest challenge, right? I, I think I faced that challenge in trying to write the book. As you said, I danced around it for so long because I was afraid to touch the concept. It was something I had disowned about myself. I really had spent my entire life figuring out how to push down, squelch, hide my sensitivity and not feel like it was something I was burdened with. I was really an expert at only presenting to the world what I wanted people to see and not having many needs and being overly helpful. Um, And I think many other people who are sensitive strivers have had that same story where you grow up with these narratives that stop taking things too personally. You should have a thicker skin. Why are you so high maintenance? Can't you just get over things by now? Right? And we internalize these messages that having this depth of processing and way of experiencing the world is a bad thing and you should get rid of it or you should hide it. And so I think that's exactly why so many sensitive people struggle with self-doubt is because they have been invalidated for so long that we start invalidating ourselves. Right. And you get to this point where you're really stuck and you can't make important decisions. Yes. That's really what's at stake here, right? Is your inability to move on with your life. So tell us about how, what was your process for, for self-acceptance, Melody? You know, I was in a fortuitous position because my, my training is in psychology and neuroscience. I have a background as a therapist. And so 
Um, you know, I was someone who went to school, did followed all of the right steps, you know, A plus gold star student, and then was quickly dropped into the work world and met with all of my unsustainable habits, my overworking, my insecurity, all of that crippled me very early on in my career. And it was an extension of not knowing how to manage myself and my career as a sensitive striver. And so I was in a good position because luckily from my training had the tools and the knowledge to start changing my thoughts and build better boundaries and disconnect, you know, my self-worth from my success and um, had had actually been building a coaching business on the side of my full-time job and was working with these similar clients and saw these same patterns for them. And so that's really the genesis of the book. And now flash forward 10 years and have built this coaching practice. And really the book is a distillation of the methodology that has come out of that. I think one of the first places to start is that being a sensitive striver can really just feel overwhelming at times. It can feel like everything affects you so deeply and you have so many weaknesses. And like you were saying, you overthink things, you can't make decisions. Where do you start? It just, it can be paralyzing at times. So in the book, what I wanted to do was really to create a framework for understanding yourself as a sensitive person. So you could tease apart um, the aspects of your sensitivity and prioritize where to start to start seeing changes. So if how do you, well, before we get to that, though, how do you identify that you are somebody that is sensitive because maybe you are in denial? <laughs> it's really hard to have a sense of yourself sometimes. Mm-hmm. So how do you get how do you get there? <laughs> well, I, you know, some there is a self-assessment in the book mm-hmm. that is drawn from what we know about the research on both high sensitivity and high achievement. So people who would be defined as a sensitive striver are people who experience their emotions to a great level of intensity and depth and complexity, right? They have this strong desire to exceed expectations in everything that they do. They consider themselves to be driven. They enjoy pushing themselves to achieve goals. Uh, They think before they act because a hallmark of sensitivity. This is definitely not me. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It's funny. Think before you act part. (laughs) It's it's so funny because. They're they're not impulsive. Right. They are not impulsive. We tend to be very cautious. They're good with money, you think? You think they're good with money? Most of the sensitive strivers I meet are excellent with money because they are (laughs) such deep they they pause before they spend on something, right? And they really anticipate eventuality. So these are the people that have every type of insurance. And you better believe I have life insurance and disability insurance and pet insurance. And I have anticipated everything that could happen to me. And so, yes, these are those people who also see opportunities that others miss. So sensitive strivers tend to make great entrepreneurs because they are people who think of inventive solutions. They tend to be five steps ahead of other people because they have made connections before other people have even gotten there then because they're very nuanced uh, thinkers. Since we take in more information, we make more connections with that and see it before other people do. But some of the downsides, some of the flip side of this trait is having an inner critic that never takes a day off, Um, struggling with burnout because you say yes or you overwork. 
um, being easily impacted by stress. So sensitivity fundamentally is about having a highly attuned nervous system. So we are always taking in everything from our surroundings, which can lead to overload. You know, it's spending eight hours in front of a Zoom screen and you're, you're just constantly overstimulated and we have a lower threshold for stress. Do you sometimes wish there was a different word to describe this person? Because I, I, I still keep going back to society and how we, you know, the context in which we use the word sensitive is not always uh, praiseworthy. It's like, oh, she's really sensitive, you know, and, and that's so unfair because how you're describing this person, she's a superhero. Yeah, 100%. I'm so glad you said that. I don't, I don't wish there was a different word. I wish we could update the meaning of the word because mm -hmm. it, it carries, it does carry a lot of baggage with it. But I will say that so often from my community, I get the question, well, should I tell people I'm a sensitive striver? And should sure, I like in an interview for a job, like right. what is something about you that we should, you know, I wouldn't suggest like, I'm a sensitive striver in a job interview, but you know, you need to have a basis of trust with someone. But every time hands down, I've had clients say that they have this conversation where they share this idea with their manager, they share this framework with them. It's overwhelmingly positive because it helps people understand you. It helps people put together pieces of how to get the best out of you and work effectively with you. It also screams confidence because if you mm -hmm. can own this is who I am and not be ashamed of it and say, actually, this is how it's a huge value add to you, to your company. You know, I'm the one who saves us money because I spot problems and raise my hand about that before it happens. I'm the one that has deep integrity and will uh, say when I don't feel something is right. So these are the people you want on your team. It just requires we feel confident and take ownership of those strengths and speak to them. So yeah. you don't necessarily have to say I'm sensitive, but you can speak to the upsides of the trait and how they how they bring a benefit. So I apologize. I interrupted you every time you wanted to give us the advice, <laughs> the strategies. So I'm going to go through some of this with you because I think it's so important. The first thing is you want to teach people in your book how to avoid burnout, mm -hmm. set boundaries and break your work addiction. Can you talk around that? And, and how do you say no? <laughs> if you are if you are the person who always is conditioned or wants to say yes. Yeah. And so I think this is really relevant right now where there's no uh, separation between work and life, right? So uh, the number one thing I have been hearing from people and working with clients on is burnout. And uh, some of the recent research I've seen says, you know, up to 85% or 90% of people are feeling that. So when I work with clients, typically how I see burnout manifest in a way I don't think is talked about enough is this idea of over-functioning, which is kind of, it's kind of self-explanatory, but over-functioning is a way of taking on more responsibility than is actually yours. So as an over-functioner, not only do you do more, so you tend to have the most projects, you have the most responsibilities at home, um, but you also take on responsibilities for other people's feelings. So you may try to kind of control a situation or contort the way you present something so that people will be uh, like you and be happy about it. Or you are the one who swoops in to fix every situation for someone. When you over-function, 
you can create a dynamic where other people underfunction. So I see this all the time where people want to be the team player, they want to be the superhero on their team um, or in their life in general. And so they will just keep taking more on their plate, right? It's kind of like this never ending, <laughs> never ending capacity that they have, which, you know, women especially do this. Yeah. It's and also been called things like emotional labor. 100%. You know, this idea of like That's taking on the, right, the emotional tolls and, or the, the responsibilities, the silent work. Mm-hmm. Mm. 100%. And so this is often, it's often masked as a positive right? Oh, you're, you're a team player. You work so hard, right? But there, that is exactly what leads to burnout and disempowers all the people around you, your partner, your kids, your coworkers, your collaborators, then don't step up. And of course, that's, that's not good. And nobody wants to be the person disempowering the people around them. So where to start with changing this? I always like to say, Use your emotions as data and use them as a guide. So if you can look for places where you feel resentment, resentment is the number one emotional cue that you have a boundary that needs to be set. You have some sort of uh, limit that you have, you have let something go on too long and somebody has crossed that limit and you have probably just kind of been stuffing it down and taking it and not saying anything. And it is, it is calcified into this resentment, right? Which is kind of like anger towards someone. And so look for areas in your life where you feel that sense of resentment. If you are the one who, you know, every month you are the one at the end of the month doing the financials and there is just resentment towards that process. Well, that's probably a good sign that you are over-functioning and you can take back control by asking your partner to pitch in or finding someone to help you with that. For example, like if you own a business and you have accounting, perhaps you hire someone to help you with that accounting at the end of the month. So there are different solutions for this, but oftentimes it's even just identifying where the opportunities are. And then it's pretty easy to figure out what a solution should be. I think part of the concern too is when you ask for help or you realize you're over-functioning and you say to your colleague, I can no longer do this. It is, we worry maybe, and I'm using the, you know, universal we that like it can come across as a, a weakness or like it's not, you're over-functioning, you're feeling it. The colleague has no idea that this is stressing you out. They may just see this as like you putting one less thing on your plate, mm-hmm. right? So how do you present it in such a way where it really does make itself clear to everybody that this is not, this is not sustainable? Yeah. Well, I think you have to know, you have to let people know what's in it for them. If there is some sort of change happening, what's in it for them? So sometimes, you know, I'll use the example of you want to change the way you're doing some reporting at work, let's say. Well, what's in it for the other person if they accept this change? For example, does it make it faster, more efficient? Does it eliminate customer service calls that they're going to get? What is the benefit for them if they go with this change? Or a lot of times I like to say, frame it in the positive. So phrases like, you know, to ensure I'm at my best or able to serve you, I'm going to sign off at 5 p.m. every day to ensure that I can show up with my best, you know, the next day. Um, Or... The positive no, which is I'm not able to do A, but what I can do is B. 
right? So you're, it's mm-hmm. kind of a trade-off about what you, you're saying no to one thing, but yes to another thing. Yeah. I mean, as I'm listening to you, of course, you're talking in the context of work, but I can't help but think about how this can apply to all aspects of our lives. Mm-hmm. These boundaries, these conversations, these scripts, you know, we're, we're not just sensitive at work. We're sensitive in our relationships, uh, with our friendships everywhere. This is extremely transferable. Would you say, I mean, your book is called, you know, trust yourself, stop overthinking and channel your emotions at work, but you could have just stopped it. Emotions, like <laughs> stop overthinking and channel your emotions everywhere, all the places. Do you find that your work is omni relevant? 100%. Yes. And so while I do talk about it in the work context, you take yourself everywhere, right? The personal affects the professional and vice versa. And these patterns tend to show up across your life. Um, yes, the book deals with it somewhat in the definitely in the work context, but everything I talk about in there, especially now because work and life is so integrated, there there is not a lot of separation that it, it really is applicable to, to all of the above. How do you trust your gut? This is something that you explore in your book. And for our sensitive strivers who do tend to overthink and question perhaps their own thinking, how do you trust your gut and how do you define gut in the book? So gut, intuition, uh, whatever, whatever you want to call it, I think it's all pretty much the same thing. It's semantics. But your, your gut sense, I would define as the pool, the body of information, experiences, preferences that you have that when you have to make a decision, your mind in fractions of a millisecond is doing calculations to pull from all of those, that bank that you have to say, what's a situation that was similar to this? And how can I apply what happened there to what I'm facing now? And this Mm -hmm. happens all outside, completely outside of our conscious awareness, which is what makes it so powerful. And why, you know, intuition can feel so woo-woo because it it doesn't feel like a concrete process, but it's data. It's data. It's your, it's your historical data. I love, I had a, a guest on the show who talked about trusting your gut and, and, and it was just Laura Day. I don't know if you've ever um, heard of her. She's incredible and blew my mind. I always thought intuition was like this spiritual lighting candles, woo woo, look for the signs. She's like, no, the signs have already been created in your own personal experiences. You have to sort of go back in time. And that intuition is really identifying those patterns in your data. 100%. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It works on implicit memory, right? Which is that ability to just effortlessly remember something. It's not and the secret. <laughs> no, it's it's not the secret, but not, not knocking it. You do you. But yeah. it, it's like an internal traffic light, I say, where your intuition gives you that that nudge, that sense that, you know, slow down, (laughs) yellow, uh, stop Mm -hmm. if something is really not a right fit for you or green, go ahead. And it's kind of this internal knowing you get. It's a a bodily sense, but it's also, you know, thoughts you have that really can and need to factor into your decision-making more. Because the research shows that people who factor in their gut feeling and balance that with more, um, what, what would you call it? Concrete or hard data? Yes. Uh, for example, when people are making buying decisions about a car, 
people who paired that very analytical thinking with their intuition made better, faster, more accurate decisions. So it is combining those two, kind of the emotional and the analytical, is more powerful than relying just on the logic alone. Hmm. We live in a world too where we often hear about the millennials being quote unquote overly sensitive. This is this has been documented in so many reports, you know, whether it's like uh, McKinsey or PricewaterhouseCoopers or like, you know, 2020, you know, millennials are sensitive, how to deal if you're an employer. And again, why your book is so important because it it's taking this um, connotation that we have with sensitivity and making it really positive and encouraging. But how do you, if you're on the receiving end of criticism or constructive feedback or just feedback from your boss and you are a sensitive striver, how, what's your advice to someone who's on the receiving end of it, of that sort of criticism and they could really over internalize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is hard because, because sensitive drivers take their work. So they're so close to it and they care so much about it. They tend to take it personally. Right. And just take in, take in all of that feedback as more importantly, as a reflection of our worth. And I think that's where the problem comes in is that we equate saying, well, here's what could have been improved in this deliverable to you're a bad person. You're horrible at this job. You're a failure. Why did we even hire you? Right? So we make these <laughs> very big logical jumps. And so a few things. What One place I always start with clients is getting ahead of this problem in the first place. So you should be thinking about having very proactive conversations with your boss or anyone you work with cross-functionally, different stakeholders about how you give critical feedback. How do you like to receive it? When, in what format? Can you give someone an example of, let's say they need to uh, deliver the, some news about something that needs to be improved? What does that look like? So you should be having those conversations up front so that there's there's more of a baseline when you do need to have that conversation. Also going on the offense, because feedback is easier for us to manage when it doesn't take us by surprise. We sensitive strivers, again, like I said before, we like to plan. We like to know what's happening. That's a core aspect of our trade is kind of being vigilant of the environment and, and staying safe. So the more you can feel in control of the process of getting feedback and not be sideswiped by it, the better. But oftentimes what happens is that because we fear feedback, we avoid it, right? We don't want to ask our boss. It's better not knowing. And that gets you into a trap because then when you do get feedback, you're not used to getting it and it hurts even more. So better to go on the offense expose yourself, do a little bit of exposure therapy and get more comfortable receiving it. Now, and hey, now we're all that we're getting vaccinated. It's easier to practice that. That's right. That's exactly right. Exposure. Yes. And when you do actually get the feedback in the moment, my kind of two-step formula, or actually it's three steps, is start with a thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. Then validate. I understand why you would be concerned that the quality of that deliverable wasn't up to par. And then ask a question. You know, what is your impression of what I could do better next time to improve this? So again, uh, start with a thank you, validate their concerns, ask a question. 
very helpful to give you a handle, something to grasp onto, to have words that come out of your mouth. <laughs> because often... Instead of the tears coming out of your Exactly. Eye. Exactly. And then afterwards, once you've had the chance to step away and you need to process that feedback, um, I like to have my clients take a sheet of paper, break it up into columns. And in the first column, you're going to write down exactly what was said, the actual words that came out of that person's mouth, not your interpretation of it. So like I said before, oftentimes they'll say, well, this needed to be changed, but we hear you're a failure and horrible at your job. Two very different things. So you need to write down exactly what was said in that first column. Second column is your place to vent. So that is what is everything that is wrong with this feedback? What did this person misunderstand? What are they missing? That is your place to just get it out, get out the emotions. Because if you keep them down, they're going to come out in another way. Third column is what could be right with the feedback? What is valid? What is worthwhile thinking about and considering? That goes in that third column. And then the last column is what action will you take? So is there something you can do to improve your process? Uh, do you need to just let it go? <laughs> For example, that's an action too. No action is a choice. So that's a very helpful kind of structured way to work through that feedback. So it's just not bouncing around in your head. Brilliant. It's so empowering. And to use the words of Susan Cain, author of Quiet, best-selling book, groundbreaking on the strengths and superpowers of introverts. Um, she writes about your groundbreaking and insightful Trust Yourself is Essential Reading for Every Sensitive Introverted Professional. Melody Wilding does a brilliant job of giving you tools to regain your confidence and become your most empowered self. And you have praise from just the heaviest hitters. Fran Hauser, who wrote The Myth of the Nice Girl, a friend who's been on the show. Also, Claude Silver, Chief Heart Officer at VaynerMedia, who's just incredible. So many. I mean, how does it feel now to be on the other side of this melody? What is next for you? Oh, it you feels incredible. I mean, it's just, it changes your life to hold the book in your hand for the first time. And what is next is really getting the book out there, spreading the message, doing more speaking, and uh, really trying to change that perception of sensitivity as a weakness into actually having it valued as a strength that it is. Yes, you've given us framework, you've given us scripts, you've given us validation, empowerment. This is going to change people's lives. I mean, I can only imagine there are so many people out there. I mean, you know them, they're your clients and you wrote this, you dedicated this book to them that have not felt like there has been any order to the disorder that they feel that there's like any sort of merit to this. And this is great. I love it. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thanks so much to Melody for joining us. The book again is called Trust Yourself, available everywhere. And you can learn more about Melody on her website at melodywilding.com. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. See you back here on Friday for Ask Farnoosh. I hope your day is so money.